Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from the earlier years of the podcast. This week, we're celebrating three of our favorite stories about New Year's, for obvious reasons. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Ophira Eisenberg, 
and before that, from Jesse Rosen. But first, a story from Ben Grant. Here's Ben now with a story we call Totally Right. I used to do acid a lot uh, in my early 20s, and I lived in Tennessee. My friends and I would do acid at my uncle's cabin up in the Smoky Mountains, and we had a system down so that what we would do is we would take acid about an hour before we arrive at this cabin way up in the mountains, and it was about an hour drive. The last 20 minutes of the drive was... uh, gravel road through forest. Uh, It was very evil dead, I would say. So it was always sort of a race against the clock. You'd say, let's go up to the mountains and you do the acid. And it was always like that chance that if you have a flat or if you get pulled over, you're totally fucked and you're gonna be on acid in a terrible situation. And that's part of the fun. So New Year's Eve, I get a call from my buddies and they say, hey, let's do it. We've been talking about it for a while. Let's go up in the mountains. These uh, few guys uh, tripping balls in the middle of nowhere for New Year's Eve. What a great New Year's Eve. So uh, he says, uh, I'm coming to pick you up. Drop. So I drop, I think, three or four hits of acid. I was a frequent flyer at the time. Um, And uh, wait. And about uh, 10 minutes go by, and then about 20 minutes go by, and then he calls and he says, uh, you know what, the car won't start. I can't get my car to start, I'm so sorry. No, we can't go up there, Happy New Year. So, um, I am on many, many hits of acid at home, and any other night of the year, my parents would go to sleep at about uh, 10. Uh, I'm about 20 years old. Um, But tonight, they're going to stay up till midnight. And it would be really weird, New Year's Eve, for me to be cowering in my room, tripping walls. Uh, So I have to be sort of social. So I sit down, and we watch uh, Dick Clark. And I remember very much thinking that he was like a splitting image puppet. I was starting to genuinely doubt if it was really the real Dick Clark. And we weren't watching some sort of fake Dick Clark show and the real Dick Clark was on some other channel. I didn't express that stuff. I remember uh, trying to put a record album on at some point. My dad wanted to me to listen to some old country song and uh, I remember that when I tried to put the record on, the color part in the center of the disc with the paper label sort of drooped off the side of the album as though the black part was water and the little paper thing in the middle was floating on water. So I was swishing it around, trying to get the paper thing to fall all the way off. I don't know how long I was doing that. Um, But my mom asked me if something was wrong and I said that I was looking for scratches on the album and she bought that, so I must not have been doing it that long. It was great, oddly enough. I made some very big realizations, one of which is that I was my father. At the time, I was this punk rock New York sketch comedian and thought that I was not like my my father in any way, who was like this big southern dude who was mostly silent. And being around him, I realized I walk like him, I talk like him, I think like him. I like the same country music he did. And I think that all happened on that trip. It was a very, very good new year and i didn't get caught or put in an insane asylum by my parents and i made some very big realizations about myself in the year 1991 i want to say and those realizations stick 
I look at my dad now and I realize, hey, that acid was totally right. So this story takes place on the night before Halloween in the town of Freehold Township, New Jersey, in the year 1996. And that's relevant and important for a couple reasons. First, the night before Halloween. In this town, my town, Freehold, the night before Halloween is Mischief Night, right? Maybe you've heard of it, Mischief Night, Cabbage Night, they call it. It is this night when middle school kids get to exercise their God-given right to toilet paper trees and egg houses. And Mischief Night is so revered, so important in my hometown that the cops act like it's not happening and the real cool moms, they go to the Sam's Club for you to purchase the toilet paper and the eggs. So that's the scenario that we're working with in Freehold, New Jersey. And the second piece of the puzzle that's important is 1996, right? I am in my eighth grade year of middle school, which means I have already survived 2.5 years holding on as the least cool kid among the actually cool kids at my school. Maybe a position you're familiar with. (laughs) I got into this set of cool kids run by Queen Amy Kay and three boys named Bill because I was new to school as a sixth grader. You know, and every new kid is a cool kid. But in order to stay cool in this town and in this middle school, you had to have this trifecta of at the time awesomeness. You had to have a pool in the backyard. You had to have a sports team that you were part of. And you had to have a wardrobe provided entirely by Abercrombie and Fitch. (laughs) Queen Amy Kay had six of those three things. She was on three sports teams and her sister was the manager of an Abercrombie. Meanwhile, No sports for me, no pool for me, not a lick of Abercrombie in my closet. And to make matters even more challenging, I was a raging nerd. To be a cool kid, you kind of had to care, you had to be smart, you had to be into it, but there was a fine line between that and me. I was such a nerd. I got 100 so many times on quizzes at that time in my life that one particularly cruel teacher started referring to 100 as a Jesse. (laughs) So this is to say that I was holding on tight to my social status. I really think Amy Kay and the Bills didn't kick me out because I was pretty excellent at group homework projects. And I also was so agreeable and malleable and easygoing as a human at that point that they just had no reason to get rid of me. But I was certain that was about to change because I had just been accepted into the International Studies Specialized Learning Center at the Freehold Township High School. Yes, friends, the ISSLC at the FTHS. And it was this magnet school inside this really big public school. So come freshman year, just over the bend, I'm not gonna see Amy Kay in the bills in classes. I'm not gonna have the chance to help them on group homework projects. I am going to be in a really big and focal way, a nerd. (laughs) I had been a nerd in elementary school. Hell, I had been a nerd in preschool. I was not about to go back. And so I decide what I need to do is like solidify my position among the cool kids, right? Really make it stick so that they have no reason to get rid of me. And I decide that I'm going to start that campaign on Mischief Night, 
the mischief night of my eighth grade year, my last chance at doing this. Obviously, I had yet to do it before out of a complete fear of ever doing anything in my life wrong, but that had to change now. So Mischief Night is on a Friday night in 96, and I convince my parents that I'm just going over to Amy Kay's to watch the Bills play the football thing on the Nintendo system, which was our typical Friday night. And they buy it, I assume, because they don't know if it's Mischief Night. Dad is the one to drop me off that night. And as he pulls into Amy Kay's driveway, he turns off Eric Clapton's greatest hits, and he turns to me and says, hey, I want you to remember that you are who you are when you aren't being watched. I'm gonna say it again and more dramatically because that's what my dad did. He says, you are who you are when you aren't being watched. So apparently he did know in fact that it was mischief night. And with that, I'm out of the car, belly full of nerves, but ready to conquer. I walk in to find Amy Kay and the Bills, my crew, but among them is a surprise guest. Mark P. And I am kind of instantly annoyed at his presence because Mark P. was like the boy version of me in this cool kid set, you know? Not cool. No cool. No crombie. No sports teams at all. A raging math nerd on the math Olympiad. He, like me, had gotten into the cool kid set because he was new to school in seventh grade. He stayed because he did a pretty impressive Jim Carrey impression, which was really key in the 90s, you probably remember. (laughs) And he was also from Pakistan, which had this real cool factor that the Bills loved. But make no mistake, he walked my same social tightrope, which made it inconvenient to me that he had a crush on me. I wanted a Bill to like me, literally, any bill would have done, Mark was a problem. And I decided that I'd have to kind of really navigate this night, make sure I wasn't spending too much time near Mark or Mark near me, so as again to solidify my status. We head out at 9 p.m. My curfew is at 10.30. So all I have to do is survive 1.5 hours of being a teenager. My low-key plan is to like have toilet paper and eggs to throw these Mischief Night staples, but not actually throw any. I'm kind of thinking I'll hurl my body, but not actually toss. I'll maybe toss an egg on the ground so it makes a splatter sound, but doesn't actually do any property damage. It's dark, I'm convinced no one will notice. We set out. We hit the first few houses, people are kind of getting into it, going slow, going steady. We hit a few more houses. I'm doing okay, kind of hanging in the back, throwing my voice as I had learned to do in drama camp. Mark P is kind of a little too close to me for my liking. And so I just keep positioning myself next to the nearest bill, but it's going okay. Then we hit a jackpot house, Mrs. Wessel, the home ec teacher's house. (laughs) Everyone hated Mrs. Wessel because everyone hated all teachers, but especially her. She had recently insisted that we learn how to iron a dress shirt Frankly, I was happy for the lesson because my band competition uniform consisted of a button down, so it was valuable to me. I played the flute, but you knew that. So we hit Mrs. Wessel's house and everyone is going nuts. And no one's really near me at this point at all. Not even Mark P. He's way up in the front, which is where Amy K and the Bills are too. And they're not noticing that I'm hanging back. They're really not noticing me at all in any way. I'm just like this vessel for holding extra toilet paper and eggs. And this fear sets over me. I think, am I already out? 
am I already uncool and they're just hanging on to me until all the group homework projects are done? Did the ISSLC at FTHS already do me in? Meanwhile, they are living their best lives. And I'm just watching in sheer jealousy as Amy Kay's blonde curls bounce up and down as she destroys private property. I'm smelling the wafting of all the bills Abercrombie cologne as they hurl toilet paper at innocent trees. I'm watching Mark P right up front with all of them solidifying his spot among the cool kids set. And I'm getting angrier and angrier and angrier at myself. This is my fault. Dad was right. You are who you are when you aren't being watched. And I am a wuss, a goody two-shoes, this total scaredy cat that can't have some good, clean fun aside from the eggs. I check my swatch. It's 10 p.m. 30 minutes remaining to make my mark. It starts to drizzle a little bit. And so Amy Kay says, we're moving on from Mrs. Wessel's house. And we move on to a house I've never seen before. At this time, the rain is really starting to come down. So Amy Kay calls out, last house. This is the last house of my last chance at mischief night ever. I am in or I'm out. So I take two eggs in my hands and I hurl them at the house. And I hurl them with the might of a girl that has never let herself throw a single thing in her entire life. <laughs> and my eggs connect and they splatter and they crack. And then the house blows up. And I don't mean the front porch light comes on. I mean the house explodes. Lights start coming out of every window and every door. And at first I think I'm seeing things, right? This like mirage of all my fears come to life, but the lights keep flashing and blaring from more and more places. And then this large alarm starts sounding from inside the house. We are all frozen in place until a woman exits the front door. She's an older woman, maybe in her sixties, and she's screaming. But there's something strange about the tone of her voice. And it's made even weirder by the way she's kind of waving her hands at us. We all notice. What's wrong with her? One of the bills says, I hear him behind me. I don't know how it all comes together in my head. It just does. She's deaf, I say. The flashing lights are an alarm. The alarm sound is an alert. It's meant to let her know that there are intruders or 13-year-old assholes. I turn around to tell this to the Bills and Amy Kay and Mark P, but most of them are gone. All of them, in fact, but Mark P. And I have this pang of guilt in my heart for hating that he was the one that liked me. And then, I just start walking toward this woman. I remember a little bit of sign language from watching Sesame Street. I remember, happy new year and I love you. 
And so I just keep walking and I start signing. Happy New Year. I love you. Happy New Year. I love you. Bigger and bigger with my arms, which I now know means I am screaming nonsense in sign language at this woman, just hoping to connect. And of course, it doesn't work. She goes back inside her home. Now I'm 20 feet away, but even through the screen door, I can see that she's crying. And so I start crying too. And I am standing there crying with Mark P behind me when the cops show up 60 seconds later. Apparently, they have a red line when it comes to mischief night in Freehold Township, New Jersey. One cop starts to calm the woman. The other cop tells Mark P and me to go walk back to Amy's K's house, which is just around the corner. They'll be there to talk to us in a minute. I never get to apologize to the woman. I never even get her name. Now, I so want to tell you that we got this vicious tear down from these cops, that they really gave us the business. But that is not what happened. They were there for five minutes. We were told not to do it again. They left. It was so fast, in fact, that they were gone by the time my dad arrived. I didn't tell him what happened. I didn't tell anyone what happened. I didn't even write it in my journal because I spent the next two days, the weekend, trying to figure out how I was gonna fix this with the cool kids. This was my fault. If I had just run, the cops wouldn't have come. If I had just been cool, we wouldn't have been in this mess. I gird my lines for Monday when I am surely going to be excommunicated from this cool kid group. But Monday comes and nothing. I'm at my locker when Amy Kay comes over to chat with me about the bill she currently loves. One of the other bills asks me to be in his math group project later that day. Mark P kind of gives me this like knowing glance at the lunch table, but then he just starts talking about his new Michael Jordan cologne. <laughs> I was still cool. I was still in, which I realized is how little shit these people gave about this entire situation. Meanwhile, I just can't get this woman's sad and scared face out of my mind. It makes me hate the person that I became when I wasn't being watched. And it makes me worried about my future in this friend group. What more would I do to stay friends with these people? Freshman year comes and I start kind of a slow march away from Amy Kay and the Bills and even Mark P. Again, I want so badly to tell you that that was it. From mischief night on, I was done with them. But I was way too much of a people pleaser in my life for that then. But I started to find my tribe. I started to actively seek out the nerds in the ISSLC at FTHS. I joined the Junior State of America. I joined Speech and Debate. I met my best friend, Rachel, a lesbian, who invited me to join her in founding our high school's first gay-straight alliance. And none of those people ever asked me to throw anything at anyone. It's been a really long time since I have seen or really even thought of Amy Kay and the Bills and Mark P. But I see that woman's face in my mind all the time. And she reminds me that Dad was wrong when he dropped me off that night. 
It's not that you are who you are when you aren't being watched. I don't think it's possible. We're never really not being watched. Because as I learned that night, and I have tried to remind myself ever since, you are always there to see yourself. Thank you. You know, um, when I, I was 25 years old, the very first time I went to New York City, and I never forget, <laughs> I went there on a Greyhound bus, and I was just staring out the grimy Greyhound bus window, you know, as we're driving, just, you know, freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to go to New York City, like everything's going to change. Uh, I was so naive. I mean, it is a little late at 25 to have never gone to New York City, but I have to tell you, I fantasized it kind of my entire life. It started when I was four years old. I was obsessed with Sesame Street, but not with the monsters and or Transylvanian counting. I was obsessed with the apartments. I was like, apartments. I Because it did not look like the suburban neighborhood I lived in, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I didn't even know of anyone who lived in an apartment, but those, you know, I was like, this looks amazing. Everyone gets their own room. You have neighbors and friends everywhere. You know, you hang out on the stoop. You're minutes away from a soda shop. Uh, and there's a sarcastic garbage can. Like, it just seemed, <laughs> I really was like, where is that? I remember saying to my older brother, I said to him, I wish Sesame Street was real. And he was like, you know, that's New York City. And I was like, oh, interesting. And then I also, this is like shameful. I only remembered it for this. I used to write little fiction stories when I was like 14 and 15 years old, mostly for myself, but with the intention that, you know, one day someone would read them and then they'd be like, this should be published. Never happened. <laughs> but I would write these little stories when I was 14 and 15, and the main character in the story was me as a woman living in New York City, I guess, whatever my perception of that was, in an apartment. My character was a starving artist <laughs> whose apartment was small, but, you know, was boho chic. She had cleverly reconstructed milk crates into furniture. You know, she was crafty. <laughs> and her best friend was a street musician down the road who played saxophone. <laughs> That was, and it was just the little adventures of me as that person. My name was Missy. And I would just write all these little stories about what Missy was up to. Because, you know, and it was just like wandering. I would just like have these stories about just wandering through the streets and having friends who lived in apartments. I had no intention of ever moving to New York because honestly, it was a fantasy. 
The images that I'd put together were from my brain, Sesame Street, the movie Annie. That was a huge part of it. Crocodile Dundee, I got to say, that was a huge part of it. Uh, And Working Girl. So I cobbled all of that together, and that's how I saw New York City, but still television, film, and my own brain. And I was like, I'll never go there. It's not for me. It seemed like it was for rich people. It seemed like it was for Americans, not for nothing. (laughs) And it seemed like it was dangerous. Dangerous in a way that I romanticized. Like I was like, I bet when you get mugged in New York City, like sparkles also fly in the air. (laughs) So then, you know, I go to uh, college. I leave Calgary, Alberta, Canada to go to college in Montreal. Most of my friends kind of dispersed around the country. And I had one friend that went to NYU. And we were all obsessed with that, that we had a friend that went to New York. And I would call her up all the time. We we, uh, would talk all the time. I'm asking her about what is it like? What is it like? She just seemed changed immediately by the experience. She would talk to me on the phone about all these things I had no idea about. She was like, well, you know, I was shopping. I don't know. Do you know the designer Patricia Field? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. I talk, you know, I would just fake it all. She was like, yeah. So we were shopping there before we saw the Blue Man group. You know, she was just like peppering all this stuff about her life and all the cultural and theatrical and fashion stuff that was around her in New York. And I felt like a country bumpkin talking to her on the phone. I was obsessed with wanting her life. Seemed unattainable. That year she said to me, Ophira, why don't you just come to New York? Why don't you come to New York for New Year's Eve? (laughs) I was like, what? And I was like, I can't, I can't. And I said to her, I have $100. Like if I traveled right now, I could only bring $100. Uh, And she was like, well, how much is a bus ticket? Uh, And I was like, I don't know. I can call Greyhound. I can let you know. And she was like, listen, if you can get a bus ticket and bring your $100, just come down for New Year's Eve day. And then we'll spend New Year's Eve together and go back on New Year's Day. And you'll probably get a cheap ticket because nobody wants to do that. And I was like, okay, great. This is how I've lived my entire life. Whatever nobody wants to do, that's where I come in. (laughs) So uh, I call up Greyhound. Tickets uh, were $36 seemed extraordinary. And so I packed my best clothes that I thought I had, uh, packed, you know, boots and a red shiny shirt that I thought was cool. New York cool, maybe. And uh, I went down and I got on this Greyhound bus, you know, and I just didn't know what to expect. But as we are on this bus and I'm looking around at the other people. Of course, no one (laughs) looked like they wanted to be there. No one ever looks like they want to be on a Greyhound bus. I was the one sort of idiot being like, this is amazing. And as we are coming into New York, you know, I think I'm expecting like we're coming into Disneyland or like we're coming into Las Vegas. Like I'm expecting this sort of grandeur to appear on the horizon. But as we come in, it is dreary. You know, it's uh, it's just gray. Uh, I mean, it was December 31st, you know, and there was no snow on the ground. It was cold, but there was no snow. It was just this uh, like freezing rain. And I just saw this skyline of a lot of buildings and they were all just gray and brown and gray and brown. 
And as we're getting closer into Penn Station, uh, looking at the people, no one looked excited to live in this fantasy of mine. They're just running around, annoyed. They look rushed and bitter. And if you know anything about New York, every port of entry is disappointing. LaGuardia, JFK, Port Authority. I mean, Grand Central, maybe. But Penn Station is the absolute worst. It is like being inside of a McDonald's that nobody has ever cleaned. Uh, and I get out of that bus and I'm walking through, you know, this a grimy windowless station full of dirty tiles outside. And there I am in New York City. And I think, oh, it's, it's gross. It's just totally gross. I was wrong. The, I was just wrong with everything. I make it to my friend's apartment. I gotta say her apartment is super small. She has a very cool roommate who is a fashion designer to be, you know, she's studying fashion design, but she talks about herself. Like she's, she says to me immediately, I'm a fashion designer while I'm in school, but you always should talk about who you are in terms of who you're gonna be. And I was like, oh, that is so New York, that is so New York. Uh, and they actually have two windows that open up onto brick walls. <laughs> it's a tiny apartment. I didn't realize that my friend Diane, who I was visiting, was very stressed about this plan for our New Year's Eve. It, something hadn't come together and she was stressed and she said she had to make a bunch of phone calls. And I kept saying to her, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry. I mean, like, I'll be happy anywhere. I'll be happy anywhere. We can just go anywhere. And she kept looking at me going, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. And I was like, what do you mean? Let's just go anywhere. She's like, we can't just go anywhere. She's making phone calls, she's making phone calls, and then finally she's happy. And she has procured an invitation for us to go to a house party. You know, I didn't come to New York to go to a house party, but I was like, whatever. I did say I'd be happy anywhere. So I show her my clothes that we're gonna wear, I'm gonna wear for our New Year's Eve in New York, uh, and that she says no. And I remember she gave me this, uh, it looked like a purple, it was a dress, but it just looked like a square piece of purple vinyl with a <laughs> um, head hole and armholes that reached, uh, you know, just with just a little bit of the panty showing. I would say it was just that long ago, just so you get, uh, so a hint of panty, I believe, uh, was the, the length. And I had a pair of, uh, she gave me a pair of heels and we were off. She, of course, looked fabulous and had like a faux mink coat. And we take a cab that she's in control, which is amazing. I felt like I was just watching the work of a master as she's navigating us. And we get to, um, we are in Midtown. And Midtown, as everyone knows, is basically blocked off in New York City on New Year's Eve for the infamous ball drop. And she says, okay, we're gonna get out here and walk because the invitation for this house party that we are going to is in Midtown. It's all sort of lost to me, but I am following her and we can't get to Midtown because it is barricaded with police and barricades. But we walk up to a pair of police guards. They are guarding the barricades and they immediately, you know, start going like, ladies, ladies, you can't come here. But Diane shows him this invitation printed out on full scap and he reads it and lets us through. Open sesame. I think this is quite fabulous. Police, we've just had an interaction with police. That's exciting. And we walk further uh, down 6th Avenue 
and we end up in front of the place that this party is. It's a condo. It is a huge, beautiful building, newish for the neighborhood in the middle of basically Times Square, New York. And we walk in and there is a doorman there. I've never seen a doorman. He greets us very formally. He gives us a glass of champagne, or maybe it was Prosecco, or maybe it was apple cider. I'm 25 years old. It doesn't matter. It's all amazing. <laughs> and I am just looking at this already. It just seems unreal. And I think to myself, because I don't know anything about the concept of a trust fund kid. I just didn't know about it. And I'm looking at this thinking, if I work really hard, you know, maybe someday I can have this. The apartment party is on the very top floor. So we ride the elevator up to the penthouse and the doors open. It is some 25-year-old's apartment, clearly a trust fund kid. They didn't work hard. Their great-great-grandfather worked hard and maybe the whole line down. But there they have this amazing apartment. It's all white. I remember turning to my friend going, it's like the kind of place Celine Dion would live. <laughs> And it's filled with other 25-year-olds who are dressed pretty cool, but they make me feel like I fit in. And someone hands me a drink, and I'm a little afraid to talk to them because I think they're all probably better than I am. But people are very welcoming, and they're nice. And I'm starting to feel like it's something, like I'm part of something. And it's fun. It's getting close to midnight, and the person that's running the party says, everyone out onto the terrace. There's a terrace, so we all go out onto this terrace. And you know, it's the top of this building in the middle of Times Square, so we are within eyeshot of the ball that is about to fall, and down below us are the throngs of people. And the countdown starts, 10, 9, I mean, I can't believe it. We're counting down as we're hearing people below us, thousands of people count with us. And we get to one and the ball drops and everyone cheers. Uh, it just feels like loud is coming all around me and within me. And some guy that looks like Benicio Del Toro grabs me and kisses me. You know what, it was the 90s. Maybe it was Benicio Del Toro, <laughs> but he just kisses me and then he looks at me and he dashes off and I think, oh, that is so New York, just to make a loving connection and then be off to the next thing, you know? And everyone on the, on the terrace starts chanting, we're in the center of the world, we're in the center of the world, and I'm cheering with them and the confetti is flying in the air and because it's so cold, it looks like sparkles. And I think to myself, this is it. This is the fantasy that I've been leading up to my entire life. And you know what? It's a sign. And I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to move to New York. And this is what New Year's Eve is going to be like for me every single <laughs> year. <laughs> I will tell you, I've been living in New York for 20 years, chasing the dragon. It's never happened. I've basically never been able to crack New Year's Eve. I've done it all. I, I think last year I watched the ball drop on television, which seemed a special kind of unimpressive when you know it's a mile away in real life. But I don't know what New Year's Eve is going to be like 
coming up. But my fantasy now, my fantasy now is that I'll be in New York for New Year's Eve and I'll go to a subpar bar that's a little too crowded and I'll pay 14 bucks for their Bud Light or whatever. And I'll have a couple friends with me there. And at midnight, I'm going to hug a stranger. Thank you. Fabulous. Ophira Eisenberg. Oh, my God. Well, that is all of this, the best of New Year's stories. You just heard from Ophira Eisenberg. Before that, Jesse Rosen. And we started things off with Ben Garant. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.